Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. Want a new podcast to look forward to each week? One that's entertaining, informative, and packed with actionable content? You know you do. And that is The Jordan Harbinger Show, a top-notch podcast named Best of Apple in 2018 and has only gotten better. Jordan goes deep with fascinating people, from authors and scientists to mobsters, spies, and hostage negotiators. During his discussions, Jordan pulls out tactical bits of wisdom for you to use to become a more informed, critical thinker. You'll learn and have a good time. He's very easy to listen to. My two recent favorites are Episode 972, Mustafa Suleiman, The Coming Wave of Artificial Intelligence, and Episode 843, Ellie Honig, how the rich get away with crime. You can't go wrong adding the Jordan Harbinger show to your rotation. It's incredibly interesting. There's never a dull show. Search for the Jordan Harbinger show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Audible.com. In case I haven't said it enough times, Audible is the Internet's leading provider of audiobooks with over 100,000 titles to choose from, old-time radio shows, magazines and newspapers, and so much more. At any time, you can go to worldwar2podcast.net and click on the Audible link and sign up for a free 14-day trial. Cancel any time or choose one of their membership programs, but either way, you get to keep the free audiobook you downloaded. This time, I would like to recommend... Hitler's Holy Relics by Sidney Kirkpatrick. It starts near the end of the war with German prisoners being interrogated, although the vast majority know next to nothing. First Lieutenant Walter Horn of the U.S. Army, an art history professor in his past life, is in the middle of an interrogation when he stumbles upon information about the location of the crown jewels of the Holy Roman Empire and the Spear of Destiny, which was taken from Austria after the Anschluss. The German soldier is simply trying to be obliging and has no idea of the significance of his own knowledge. General Patton's intelligence staff gives Horn just three weeks to find the priceless artifacts before they are taken by neo-Nazis hoping to revive Hitler's dream of domination. In fact, some of the artifacts have already disappeared. It's an amazing story, well told and well read. It's part detective story, part thriller, and all true. Trust me, you will end up sitting in your driveway, listening long after the engine has been turned off. Hello, and thank you 
for listening to The History of World War II, Episode 44, Defense of the Air. By the end of World War I, it was clear to all that air power would play an important, if not dominant, role in the next war. But, as is often the case, after a war, military expenditures dropped quickly. In Britain, military thinking was offensive, as in it would be better to fight on someone else's land instead of their own. So the bomber was focused on. But there were those who gave thought to the defensive side of the equation as well. So in 1923, a committee was formed to create a plan to defend against an attack from the continent. The first step was the obvious setting up of anti-aircraft guns around London and establishing observatory posts along the coast. Clearly, whether offensive or defensive, planning in any future military production would center around the battle for the skies. Although the offensively minded focused on bomber development, tactics, and strategy, there was surprisingly little progress throughout the 1920s. This neglect was continuously brought to the attention of the government and public by the insistent MP from Epping, Mr. Churchill. Eventually, the government relented and voted for a five-year expansion plan for the RAF. At the time, this included all aspects of military aviation and supporting entities. Two years later, as it grew, significant changes were made as the growing RAF clearly needed reorganizing. It was decided to break up the organization into commands of bomber, fighter, coastal defense, and training. So, on July 6, 1936, Fighter Command was created, and its first commander-in-chief, appointed eight days later, was Hugh Caswell Tremahir Dowling. On that very day, he visited his new headquarters. Of course, new is a relative term, since Fighter Command would be run from a 166-year-old mansion named Bentley Pryor in Middlesex. Dowling soon found out that his Fighter Command would also be responsible for Anti-Aircraft Command, Balloon Command, and the Observatory Corps. Fortunately for all, Dowling, due to his experience, actually knew in detail and understood these different issues, their technology, and how to apply them in a cohesive, effective defense. But all this organization and knowledge means very little without the funds to obtain the necessary equipment to make it a reality. But Downing, an odd fellow, there is no other word for it, but it's not meant disrespectfully, found not a friend but an ally in Neville Chamberlain when he came to power in 1937. Chamberlain was always skeptical of the Army and Navy's complaints of wasting money towards the RAF, but in reality, they just wanted the funds for themselves, and Chamberlain knew this. Another, albeit initially unknown ally for Downing, was Minister of Coordination of Defense, Sir Thomas Inskip. But what put him in Downing's camp was a combination of economics and lacking of belief that the bomber would always get through. For Inskip, it came down to the fact that fighters were cheaper to make, and so he actually built up fighter command and still saved money. For Downing, his job was to protect Britain from an invasion, and the best way to do that was with fighters. Fighters could control the sky, harass enemy troops, and destroy needed supplies. Thinking of how he would deploy his fighters to accomplish all this, he calculated the need of 45 squadrons. Still, this was only a plan, an observation. Britain needed time to build the squadrons he wanted, and looked at through this light, the Munich Accord of 1938 did just that. 
So thanks to the politicians who saw the value of a defensive shield, Dowding started getting his funds. And thanks to the ambiguous achievement of the Munich Agreement, Dowding gained more time. But it simply wasn't a matter of filling the skies over southern Britain with aircraft. Enemy aircraft had to be found and engaged before causing their own damage. And since all of southern Britain was open to attack, the defense had to be organized and focused so that the adequate number of planes met the enemy in a timely manner with enough remaining fuel and ammo to accomplish the job. And it's probably fair to say that no one thought of these complex, integrated issues as much as Downing. He is credited, and rightly so, with coming up with the overall system of detection and response. His first steps were made before 1936, when with the Air Council. Back in 1934, the RAF was experimenting with sound location technology to detect aircraft. It turned out to be hopeless, so the next idea in line was examined. Some scientists had talked of a death ray for aircraft, but few believed in its viability. Still, nothing could be left to chance, and so Henry Tizard, the head of a committee set up by the Secretary of Air, asked Robert Watson Watt of the National Physical Laboratory to prove it would not work. The report was conclusive, but they also found and reported that radio beams, though not harmful to humans, were affected by aircraft. The report ended with the idea that maybe radio waves could be used to detect aircraft. Most in the field already knew that radio waves bounced off solid objects, because it had been proven by Heinrich Hertz in the 1890s. The Germans experimented with the phenomena, which one day would be called radar, but the Navy only wanted it used to aid in gun laying or the aiming of their large guns. Any advantage over the British Navy was welcome, but the Luftwaffe was interested, with Gehring leading the way, and by 1938 had developed a detection system of their own. Back in Britain, Watson Watts' team got to work and had a successful test of detecting reflected radio waves from an airplane in February of 1935. This only encouraged them further, and by September of that year, they were able to detect planes 50 miles away. So the Air Defense Subcommittee was convinced that a chain of these had to be set up along the coast. The station started going up, with constant improvements made along the way, and more tests in 1937 showed the Air Ministry that they were definitely on the right track. In 1940, with war declared, additional chains were set up to capture signals from low-level flying aircraft as well as ships in the channel. All this equipment in place had to be run by people, but the Air Ministry certainly didn't want word getting out. So people were hired, told not to talk about their work, and were shown only as much as they needed to do their jobs. On paper, they were mostly called clerk special duties. But the truly skilled operators were at the core of this project. Technicians used the developed instruments and with practice were able to tell four things about incoming aircraft. The time between sending the signal out and receiving it back after bouncing off the aircraft told them the range of the target. A goniometer showed the bearing or direction of the flight. Next, the shape and amount of interference of the radio signal told the number of aircraft. And finally, by using different stations and crossing their signals, the operators could tell the height. This last one was very important as height determined a pilot's initial tactics in meeting an opponent. 
But height was also the hardest piece of the information to get right, thus the cross-readings of the multiple signals. Still, pilots learned early on to add a few thousand feet to enemy height readings that they were given. The system invented by Downing and others only gets more complex from here, but after years of practice, and I do mean practice, as well as tweaking along the way, everyone knew their role, and everyone who needed it had access to the information needed to make informed decisions. Downing did not direct the actual fight against the Luftwaffe. The group commanders decided which sectors to activate, and so controlled the tactical situation. The sector commanders had the responsibility to get the activated squadrons into the air in such a way as to give them the best tactical approach. Simply, Downing built the system that allowed Britain to focus its assets of aircraft, pilots, post-combat information, and measures for constant improvement against the enemy. Of course, no one man could do it all, and two major weaknesses would be discovered and improved later. First, many of the RAF staff were housed in buildings above ground, and second, there was a lack of an organized air-sea retrieval system in place to rescue pilots. Fighter Command and 11 Group Headquarters were underground, but most of the sector stations were not, and in ordinary, unarmored buildings. They were small and thus hard to hit, but the ultimate test was, if attacked, these highly trained, valuable personnel could be killed by a single bomb. As for the pilots in 1940, if one of them went down over the channel, they could only hope that the locals saw them and would send out craft to search for them. Pilots were not equipped with a dinghy or fluorescence to mark their location, and although they wore a May West to help stay afloat, the temperature of the water during the summer meant that the men could only expect to hold out for about four hours. Of course, if a downed pilot wore regulation dress, that time was made shorter. The collar of the standard officer's Van Housing shirt shrank in seawater and could easily strangle a wounded pilot, which is why many wore the silk scarves around their neck. It wasn't vanity, it was expedience. But as someone once said, adapt or die. But as more valuable pilots drowned in the early stages of the battle, changes were made in August of 1940. But not until 1941 was a proper air-sea rescue service formed. Ironically, the Germans never fully appreciated or discovered more of the RAF's workings or secrets. As the British had shared much with the French, who soon came under the control of Nazi interrogators, the Germans did not seem to press the issue, especially after their inability to conquer the RAF as time went on. But it seems that the Germans did not try to find out more because they thought they knew it all. After all, they knew about radar. They invented it. They used it. But what set the RAF apart was Downing's application and supportive system around it. You do not need equal or larger numbers than your enemy if you can focus what you have and apply it only where needed. Only if one had to keep planes constantly flying all over the place would impossible numbers of planes and pilots be needed. And because of Downing and radar, that simply wasn't the case in the Battle of Britain. An excerpt from Adolf Galland, a Luftwaffe general and flying ace after the war. Quote, From the first, the British had an extraordinary advantage, never to be balanced out at any time during the whole war, which was their radar and fighter control network and organization. 
It was a very bitter surprise for us. We had nothing like it. We could do no other than knock frontally against the outstanding, well-organized, and resolute direct defense of the British Isle. Unquote. With this, Galland oversimplifies his case, but the emotion behind his words shows the psychological effects Britain's organized defense had on the heretofore successful German pilots. They actually got a taste of it at Dunkirk, but couldn't see clearly through the overwhelming success of pushing the French out of the war and driving the British to the coast. But they were starting to. Hey everyone, Ray here. I've been using Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today. And like many of you, I think about my golden years, and I hope they're golden. I have a Roth IRA with Fidelity and another with Merrill, and I have consolidated them into one hub with Yahoo Finance. There, I have access to expert analysis to help me stay atop this ever-changing world. And with Yahoo Finance at my fingertips, I can focus on my goals of paying off my house and getting ready for, you know, me time. And since Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, they know what they're doing. It's the number one finance destination with their independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. With a community of over 90 million users each month, their real strength is helping you on your way to financial success. So, for comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. And now, the battle. July 20th through the 22nd. By Saturday, July 20th, the sun was trying to make an appearance, and the result was scattered thunderstorms with bright intervals all over southern Britain. Per the German battle orders, reconnaissance flights were sent out early in the morning. As the Luftwaffe was still focused on using the convoys as a way to get to the fighters, they focused in the south, the southeast, and the northeast. About 9 a.m. that morning, multiple small raids were plotted near Kent in the southeast. Squadrons were sent up, but because there were at least three separate raids over the area, and as many RAF squadrons responding, the lines between each opposing pair became blurred. There were a few confirmed victories for each side, but mostly it was a jumbled mess, with some ships being attacked, but none were sunk. The German reconnaissance flights continued until mid-afternoon. There were also clashes in the air to the south. In the early afternoon, 501 Squadron scrambled from Middle Wallop in Hampshire to intercept Junkers 87s, which were escorted by ME-109s. They had left from the Jersey Island area and headed to the south coast, looking for convoys, or rather, the fighters protecting the ships. Sergeant J.H. Ginger Lacey, leader of 501, already had five kills from France and would go on to become the top-scoring British pilot in the Battle of Britain. Lacey and his men headed into the fray, and he soon locked on to one of the 109s. The ME was initially heading towards him when Ginger got off three quick bursts of his guns. But more importantly, he did this before the ME could line up and fire his guns. Some of Ginger's bullets struck home, and the German pilot quickly started evasive maneuvers. But the damage was done. The ME started nosing down, and Ginger was surprised by the very small splash it made as it dove straight into the water. 
He immediately found another ME-109 and turned toward him. But at the same moment, the ME turned toward Ginger. Panicking, Ginger quickly fired off a few rounds. And although the 109 was staggered by this, still, it came on. They passed within a few feet of each other, and another of the squadron finished off the Messerschmitt. Ginger was safe to fight another day. Again, ships of the convoy below were harassed, but due to the RAF, none were sunk. Later on in the afternoon, back to the southeast, off Dover, shipping came under attack, and close-by squadrons took to the skies to intercept. Again, battle was joined, and both sides suffered losses, but any details were lost in the intensity of the dogfight. However, like the morning combat, the Luftwaffe seemed to get the worst of it. The Germans, not giving up, tried again for the shipping near Dover. But this time, as the RAF rose up to give challenge, the two separate raids turned around and headed for France. However, two MEs decided on a quick pass at the ships below and paid the ultimate price for it. To the northeast, at least three raids were plotted. One approached Peterhead, but turned back when the fighters got close. The others that were plotted were probably meteorological flights and headed home before they could be challenged. However, one Dornier 17 was shot down near Kinnaird's head. That night, there was an extensive lane of mines between 10 p.m. and 2 a.m. off the east coast. What planes the Luftwaffe lost in the day, the British would lose in ships at night. Mines were also laying off the southern coast, west of White, as well as the Bristol Channel. Bristol also received light bombing raids, and the damage was considered minor, unless your home was one of the few that were hit. There were just under 200 patrols that day, which involved 655 aircraft. Over 1,100 barrage balloons were sent up to disrupt the bombers, and about 44 of them were damaged. Losses for the day were three for the RAF and nine for the Luftwaffe. Both sides also suffered many damaged aircraft that somehow made it back to their base. Total losses recorded to date were 40 for the RAF and 63 for the Luftwaffe. If the goddess Fortuna is reflected in any way by Mother Nature, then she was clearly fickle about the antagonists this day, Sunday, July 21st. The weather started out fine, but then became cloudy over most of southern Britain, but by evening cleared once again. Hitler gathered his commanders-in-chief to talk further of Operation Sea Line. The rejection to his latest and last peace proposal came hard upon his offering of it, and so it was time to face facts. He would have to referee between the army and the navy if there was going to be an invasion. In the past, before he was secure in his position and power, it suited him to have these powerful men against each other, but now he needed them to work together. That was the only way to defeat the RAF, stun the British Navy, and conquer the momentarily weak British land forces. But the dispute started just as the meeting started. The Army would not guarantee success unless the Navy transported 40 divisions to southern Britain. The Navy, with Admiral Rader present, would only accept responsibility for 10 divisions. For the generals, this was clearly not enough even with the largely unequipped British forces. Churchill had boasted several times that London alone could occupy a large German force if it was forced to fight from street to street, but Hitler had easily worked that out for himself. 
than Hermann Goering, recently promoted to Reichmarschall des Großdeutschen Reiches, or Reich Marshal of the Greater German Reich, and leader of the Luftwaffe, stepped into this storm with what he saw as a compromise. He stated that, with five good days of weather, his planes could make it so that ten divisions would be adequate to land in the south and march on London. Still, Hitler had his doubts. He said, The invasion of England is a specially audacious venture. Although the crossing will be short, we are not contenting with a river, but the open sea, controlled by a well-prepared enemy. Goring left to talk with his commanders Kessering and Sperla. Hitler had planted himself on the fence again, but was violently shoved off when he heard on that day the Soviet Union had forced Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania to come under the umbrella of Joseph Stalin. Goering talked to his subordinates, and then Kesselring and Sperla talked to their Geschwader commanders. The Luftflotte commanders Kesselring and Sperla's orders from Goering stayed the same, for the most part. Goering now wanted British warships added to the list of targets. The Reich Marshal knew Adlertag would be coming soon. But this was clouding their mutual decision that the destruction of the RAF was paramount. With control of the British skies, everything was possible. The enemy's warships, their convoys, and the needed future landing areas would be at their mercy. Explaining his thinking even further, Goering wanted the 109s and 110s free to roam and hunt British fighters. He declared that he would soon appoint someone to head this up, but for now, the plan, his plan, would remain. Only small bomber groups would be sent out with light escorts. The German fighters were to focus on their British counterparts, and if the German bombers found themselves inadequately protected, he suggested tighter formations. Unlike his Luftflotte commanders, Goering was willing to lose bombers if it meant bringing down British fighter pilots. As for the battle on the 21st, the north and east coasts were spared this day, besides the reconnaissance flights, which were spotted over Wick and East Anglia. However, Goering was sticking to his plan to use the British convoys to find the RAF fighters. Like the last few days, the German reconnaissance flights went searching over the channel. Soon, convoy Peewit was spotted, and the reconnaissance aircraft turned for home. Their job was done. Fighter Command wasted no time in getting a squadron flying over the convoy, but this time, the Luftwaffe was trying a different tact. The predictable attacks came, but were beaten off, and no ships were sunk. But both sides lost planes in the fight. The Hurricanes and Spitfires headed for home, but then another attack came just as they were landing. But the second group of German fighters had been plotted, and so a second squadron had been rushed to take up a defensive position. This second raid was intercepted, and again, no ships were sunk. However, whether from the first or second squadron, probably the first, one of the Spitfires did not return to its airfield. Meanwhile, to the east, HMS Brazen, which had suffered damage from bombing near Dover the day before, sunk as it was being towed. The Luftwaffe commanders knew that the British radar was helping their opponents across the channel to have planes ready and in position to protect their convoys. So they decided on some trickery of their own when they attacked the Peewit convoy for a third time that day. At about 3.20 p.m. that afternoon, 
nine-plus German fighters were approaching Portland, which had seen a tremendous amount of attention for the last week or so. A squadron was activated and on its way when the attackers did a 90-degree turn and headed straight for the Peewit convoy. As fast as the German Emmys were, the moment they turned, Fighter Command saw this and reacted and more squadrons were sent up. A confused dogfight ensued, both sides scoring victories, but no ships were sunk. As the 109s were heading for home, one of the hurricanes that had initially been sent to Portland caught up with them and shot down an ME-110. That night saw relatively light activity, but mines were suspected of being laying in the Plymouth area as well as the Thames estuary. Bombs were dropped near Liverpool and further to the northeast near Stirling. The second bombing destroyed two houses and damaged nearby buildings. Again, the damage was not considered major by fighter command, but some people that night lost family, friends, or a home. Later that night, the German U-boat 30 sunk the British steamer Elleroy, 180 miles west of Cape Fidestere, Spain. All 16 members of the crew made it to the lifeboat and reached Vigo, Spain. And finally, around 5 a.m., a convoy was unsuccessfully attacked off the Lincolnshire coast. Attempting to keep the convoy safe, 190 patrols were dispatched that day, which involved 596 aircraft. Again, over 1,100 barrage balloons were sent up and 60 were destroyed. Losses for the day were 6 for the RAF and 7 for the Luftwaffe. Total reported losses to date were 46 and 70, respectfully. Home production was building enough planes to match RAF losses, but trained pilots were a different story. Fighter Command also knew that losses like this could not be tolerated. They could not match the Luftwaffe's losses and stay in the fight. For whatever reason, despite the improved weather on Monday, July 22nd, Luftwaffe activity was lighter than it had been for the last few days. The Dover Straits across from Calais were clear, with light rain to the east and light clouds over the channel to the west. It's possible that the digesting of information from the two meetings the day before caused the Luftflotte commanders to focus on information gathering over sorties. Although Luftwaffe estimates of downed RAF fighter aircraft were vastly overdrawn, they had to be honest about their own losses. Clearly, more intelligence gathering was needed before a more structured and designed plan to win the air war could be implemented. The usual meteorological and convoy reconnaissance flights were carried out this day, but no ships were attacked. The RAF, unaware that the Luftwaffe would be pulling back on their attacks, kept up their patrols over the convoys in the channel and along the east coast. A raider crossed the coast between Bristol and the Sussex coast, but was flying very high and left when approached. Another raider crossed at Selsey Bill to the east of White, but didn't manage to get away in time and was shot down near Tangmere. Another raid of three German aircraft approached Selsey Bill and was engaged, but there were no victories on either side. There were other raids throughout the day, but they followed the same pattern, few engagements and fewer actual dogfights. Both sides had one confirmed victory for the day. Total losses to date were 47 and 71 respectively. The larger than normal night activity started just as the sun went down. The area bombed was larger than normal as well. 
the Luftwaffe may have been rethinking their daytime tactics, but that didn't change the fact that nighttime sorties were far more safer. Starting around 9 p.m., attacks and mine lanes started along the southern coast, from Portland to Land's End. From about 10 p.m. until 2 a.m., bombs were dropped on many points over the British Isle. To the northeast, near Edinburgh, an attack came, causing civilian casualties. The raider probably came from Norway and departed unchallenged. In the west, near South Wales, bombs were also dropped. Mines were laid in the Bristol Channel and along the east coast. Although the darkness increased the chances of a Luftwaffe pilot returning home, it was not guaranteed. To the south, near Selsey Bill, a Dornier 17 had just finished dropping its bombs when it was engaged and downed before it was able to cross the channel back to Calais. That night, houses, German prisoners, water mains, electricity supplies, and docks all suffered from the bombing. The British Navy was trying to do its part in hunting down German U-boats, but tensions were high and everyone was focused on not being the next casualty, and mistakes were bound to happen. The British submarine HMS Clyde fired six torpedoes at one of its own, HMS Truant, near Norway. Fortunately, all torpedoes missed and neither sub was damaged. British intelligence submitted a report that day to the War Cabinet. It stated that the Luftwaffe was up against a determined and efficient fighter defense force for the first time. Also, the Luftwaffe seemed not quite fully prepared for a major operation. The report felt confident that this would be coming soon. The enemy commanders were probably using this time for tactical experiments against RAF air defenses. It finished with the assumption that the full weight of the Luftwaffe would be brought to bear on fighter command, and soon. Overall, this report was predictable, but impressively accurate. That evening, British Foreign Minister Lord Halifax broadcasted the government's official rejection of Hitler's peace offer. Quote, No one here wants the war to go on for a day longer than is necessary, but we shall not stop fighting until freedom, for ourselves and others, is secure. Unquote. Clearly, the British were determined to stay in the fight, while the Luftwaffe was determined to find the chink in the RAF's armor. Greetings from Central Virginia. Just two quick announcements tonight, and I will let you go. The first one is, um, because of Paul Finch's hard work, there's only one website, World War II Podcast.net, and one iTunes feed. So, for those of you who have taken the time to write probably your third review or rating on iTunes, I thank you. But this time, because of Paul's hard work, uh, it will never go away. It will never disappear. It will always be there. So, thank you for uh, writing something on iTunes. And again, Paul, thank you for the website. And finally, the tour information is posted and ready for everybody to look at. When you get a chance, forget that, please run to a computer and go to historyworldtravel.com. The fine people at uh, Educational World Travel have put this together, and I'm tempted to read the entire itinerary to you, but that's pushing the bounds of good taste, I know. So when you get a chance, check it out. Um, I'm sure there'll be more information on the website as time goes by, but um, if you have any questions, you can send them an email, or if you want a book, you can send them an email to info at historyworldtravel.com. 
So if all the people that wrote me asking questions uh, actually sign up for this, it's probably going to go pretty fast. But if you don't make it this time and you happen to live in London, Paris, Normandy, Dunkirk, Lille, Luxembourg, or Brussels, just look for the American with a large group that's butchering all of the names. You'll know it's me. Come by and say hi.